podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. In the era of coronavirus, we've spent so much time focused on the lackluster efforts to fight the virus here in the West and on the growing tensions between the U.S. and China that sometimes it's easy to forget there's other countries and other conflicts out there, continuing as they always have. Southeast Asia has been hit hard in recent years by shifts in state power, by internal security problems, and by ongoing counterinsurgency campaigns. In India, the government of Narendra Modi has pushed towards nationalism and authoritarianism, calling into question Indian citizenship and stripping Kashmir of its autonomy. In Afghanistan, U.S. troops are beginning to withdraw, but the peace process is fraught with problems. And tensions between India and Pakistan, between Myanmar and Bangladesh, and most worryingly, between India and China, are all on the rise. Add to that a global pandemic, and it's a recipe for instability. Joining me today to discuss regional security in South Asia is Paul Stanland. Paul is an associate professor of political science at the University of Chicago and a non-resident scholar in the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Paul, welcome to Power Problems. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Emma. So um, I thought we could start just a little bit by talking about the impact of COVID-19 in the region. Um, It seems like we're just so focused on how the virus has played out in Europe and in America and a bit in China that we're literally ignoring developing countries. Um, How are these countries managing? So it's, it's it's an interesting question because there's been, there's a lot of uncertainty and also a lot of divergences in the region. So India has been hit hardest, it looks like. Um, And I say it looks like because there's a lot of controversy and disagreement in the region about whether there's adequate testing or not. So on a per capita basis, you're seeing a lot less testing in these countries than in some peers, but especially that in compared to the developed world. So I want to be really careful. We're not exactly sure what's going on. Um, Given that, it looks like India is kind of consistently being hit the hardest right now uh, with escalating case counts. And that's had huge economic consequences. Uh, The Modi government instituted a very kind of hard, sharp lockdown early on. And so it's it's different than some of these other cases of, of so-called populist leaders like, you know, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil or Trump in the U.S. who kind of didn't take it seriously, didn't push for hard measures. India locked down and it locked down very hard. Um, but it, it was forced for economic reasons to start reopening. And there's been substantial spikes, kind of ongoing increases since, um, accompanied by a huge economic contraction. So that, that's what's going on in India. It's, it's not a great situation. Um, that said, both in India and in the rest of the region, the per capita death rates are, are quite low. One question there is, do we have accurate measures of those death rates? And I can't really speak to that. There's you know disagreements. Um, Pakistan instituted what it called a smart lockdown strategy, where it um, basically tried to minimize the economic consequences of the lockdown. And its cases have gone down quite dramatically, again, with huge caveats about data. I, so I'm, I'm really, you know, I want to be clear that we don't really know, I think, with full confidence what's happening. Uh, but also Pakistan's been hit economically as well. And, and Pakistan had had some serious challenges already with its, um, with its economy. And so the general regional picture is one in which it's not exactly clear what's been happening, but there have been big political and economic consequences that have flowed both from cases in which, you know, the the case count has been escalated and also those in which there have been substantial drops in actual case counts. And and most of those consequences right now are are on the economy and kind of fairly sustained or severe, I should say, drops in economic growth um, in countries that really need economic growth quite badly right now. 
Okay, so let's get back to politics um, because we're we're primarily interested in politics here, even though we've ended up being amateur epidemiologists for most of the last year. Um, so I want to start by talking about India. Um, the government of Narendra Modi has been making some pretty big changes to governance in India, moving in a really nationalist direction. Some have suggested that he's pretty authoritarian and moving more in an authoritarian direction. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about what's going on in Indian politics? Should we be concerned about this? So that that's a big question. And so let me kind of offer a couple ways of thinking about what's been going on. Um, so Modi won a, a fairly decisive, I mean, very decisive re-election uh, last year in May of 2019. And he had first won election in 2014 on a platform that kind of combined Hindu nationalism, but also had a big focus, at least rhetorically, on governance and economic growth, kind of developments, you know, bringing India into the, into the 21st century, uh, targeted corruption, kind of that. So it was a very powerful package. Um, over the, the five years that, that followed, from 2014 to 2019, um, I would say, I mean, the Modi government has done a lot of things. So this is speaking at a very broad brush level, but had some successes in things like reforms, but did not trigger kind of dramatically changed growth trajectories or governance trajectories in the country. Um, and even in, in 2019, and then continuing now since into 2020, there were serious warning signs about the economy. Um, and so the 2019 election that, that in which Modi won re-election had focused much more explicitly, I guess I would say, or, or heavily on themes of nationalism, Hindu nationalism, national security, toughness, kind of, you know, a fight against infiltrators, traitors, anti-national elements within. And so that was a, a fairly big success. Now, that's not the only story. There was also a focus on increased service development, uh, service provision, governance, things like that. But kind of the trajectory heading into the second Modi term was, was quite focused on these cultural and nationalist issues. So we saw in August of 2019, um, the government put, you know, the, it was more complicated than this, but simply put, uh, revoked the, the formal autonomy of the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir, and then bifurcated it. So instead of a single state of Jammu and Kashmir, it turned it into two what are called union territories, which have less kind of autonomy and power relative to the central government. So that was in August. And then over the course of the fall, the government advanced a Citizenship Amendment Act or Citizenship Amendment Bill um, that aimed, in the government's framing, aimed to help non-Muslim and non-Christians, so mainly Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs in the broader region, come to India uh, with various kind of criteria that some of which remain vague to this day. Um, and the government framed this as a way of helping those in the greater region who had, were being persecuted large in kind of non-Hindu majority countries. Um, critics, and I, I think rightly, raised concerns that first, this was introducing a, an explicitly religious set of criteria, but also second, that this could be used in combination with another policy the government had talked about, especially the home minister, that would try to kind of get a full national registry of citizens. So you could imagine worlds in which especially Muslim citizens of India, could be held in a kind of limbo about their actual citizenship status. So this triggered a set of protests, and then kind of counter-protests, violence broke out in a number of cases. There was kind of heightened political polarization into the fall and the winter. Um, and some, in some ways, this culminated in a very deadly riot in Delhi earlier this year, in which more than 50 people were killed. There were also incidents of shootings and you know police repression. So things got pretty ugly pretty quickly, I think it's fair to say over the fall and into the early winter of 2020. 
Um, a lot of that then, with, because of the hard lockdown, has kind of come to a, at least a, a partial halt. Politics, in some ways, has kind of you know obviously been heavily disrupted. But that kind of those are the events of the last year or so that that raised big questions. Now, the Modi government, I think it's fair to say, and you know there will be people, kind of partisans of Modi or partisans of the Indian government, who would disagree with this, but. I think it's moved in a, a clearly illiberal direction, right? There's been heavy use, especially Kashmir, but also elsewhere of um, law enforcement of the security apparatus to kind of arrest people or hassle, harass people. Um, in some cases, fairly clear, I think it's fair to say, violations of what we standard commonly think of as, as due process and rule of law. So that has raised a number of concerns, both in the US and in India and you know, in other places uh, about the trajectory. Right now, things because of coronavirus are, as I said, kind of stuck in limbo. But that's the trajectory we're seeing heading into early 2020. Yeah, it, it seems like um, particularly that the ethnic and religious angle, um, that was a fear that I think a lot of people had when Modi first came to power because he had this history of being involved with some anti-Muslim riots and, you know, potentially actually inciting that kind of violence. And so I think there were there were a lot of fears and he, you know, it didn't seem to happen early on, but seems to be increasingly happening. Um, from an international relations standpoint, though, obviously, the, the division of Kashmir is, is a pretty big deal in Indian-Pakistani relations. Um, so I guess, you know, there's the there's the religious angle and then there's the political angle. Um, it, are those different or is it mostly the Pakistanis advocating for the Muslim citizens up there and the Indians sort of advocating for the opposite? So, um, yeah, the Kashmir dispute has been one of kind of the central axis of conflict between India and Pakistan, going back to the partition of the two in, in 1947. And so I think it's fair to say that the Indian government kind of gave up on dialogue or concessions with Pakistan several years ago. Um, from the Indian perspective, they'd reached out to Pakistan and kind of nothing had ended up happening. There continued to be attacks from armed groups, uh, a number of which have sanctuary or bases in Pakistan. So I think the move in August of last year was seen as, I, I think is best understood as basically a fait accompli, that this is off the table now, right? That there have been these administrative changes. India already was fairly firm that it would kind of not be giving up Kashmir to Pakistan under pretty much any imaginable circumstances. I mean, there's a whole uh, world of UN resolutions, ideas about a plebiscite, um, the, you know, international law that could be relevant. I think for both the Indian and Pakistani governments, those tend to be used as rhetorical devices. Um, so I think this has worsened relations between India and Pakistan. There continues to be quite a lot of shelling back and forth across the line of control between kind of Indian-controlled Jammu and Kashmir, Pakistani-controlled. Um, and so there's there's ongoing military tensions. Now, this the August events of 2019 kind of followed a few months after a crisis in February of 2019 that saw a big attack by uh, a Kashmiri, a young Kashmiri, but part of a Pakistan-based jihadist group, uh, Jaish Muhammad, that then triggered an Indian airstrike, which then triggered a Pakistani air aerial response and dogfights, and things got really pretty wild in February. So this is all occurring against a very tense India-Pakistan relationship already. And I think this kind of is a further um, moved basically towards saying there's nothing really to talk about from the Indian perspective. And so Pakistan has launched a sustained diplomatic offensive to highlight Indian human rights abuses. Um, but as we, maybe we can talk about, it's, it's difficult to get the international community, whatever you view that as, to really put pressure on India over Kashmir. 
right? So Pakistan's had an uphill task and also has lacked a lot of credibility in the eyes of, of a lot of people of the international community, um, both because it has a long history of supporting terrorist and insurgent groups, and also because I think it's fair to say that, the, I mean, based on the opinion polling we have, with all the caveats that come with that, um, of the options presented to Kashmiris, kind of an Indian-controlled Kashmir, uh, I think it's fair to say plurality or majority would probably prefer independence from both India and Pakistan, which is not really what Pakistan is looking for. So there are real limits to Pakistan's ability to kind of launch this diplomatic offensive um, over the Kashmir issue. That's really interesting. Um, you know, it, I actually one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, and I think you've, you've almost kind of answered it already, is whether um, the potential for violence is is more at sort of the sub-state level, you know, are we going to see Pakistan backing more militant groups in the region, or whether it's sort of actual state-on-state um, -state violence. And it sort of sounds like you're describing it a bit as a continuum, that, that um, there's, there's not really that hands-off, um, you know, plausible deniability that a lot of states treat their, their sub-state militant groups as. So I would say the Pakistanis do claim deniability, just not very plausible. Let's put it that way. Not um, very it well. is also the, Right. Uh, it is also the case that at least, you know, in recent years, that the majority of militants in Kashmir are born and raised on the Indian side of the line of control. So it's, it's not kind of either, it's both, right? It's there, uh, there is, there has been Pakistani support. I think it's plausible to suggest, though the Pakistanis would contest this, that at least at some level that continues. That said, a lot of the, the recruits are actually like Kashmiri kids, many of whom are killed fairly quickly. Um, so they're not like this robust military force, but it continues. The conflict continues internally. Um, and so so it's kind of you're layering conflicts on top of one another. The big fear about how you end up in a conventional or even a nuclear exchange is that there's some sub-state event, right? Uh, an IED goes off, a bombing, something like that, a dramatic attack like we saw in February. India responds, Pakistan responds, things then escalate in ways that can be hard to control. Um, so that's the fear of how you get into a big conventional fighting war uh, that can then, once you're there, can be hard to manage, potentially. Now, something that we've seen more in the last few months is China kind of becoming more of a player. And so the areas where the kind of the fiercest border disputes are occurring right now are in, so I, I mentioned that Jomun Kashmir got bifurcated. So what you saw is a union territory of Jomun Kashmir. That's where the main insurgency has been. That's where the tensions are with Pakistan, primarily. Um, then the other Union territory that was created is Ladakh, which is to the east. Um, and so that's where the Cargill War in 1999 occurred primarily. But also as you move east, you get to the China, what's called the line of actual control between India and China. So that's in this other Union territory. And there we now see China involved in quite intense border tensions with India. Um, and so the Indian concern has been a two-front war, where you have Pakistan to the west, China to the east. Um, and that, you know, has greater significance now as we've seen these border tensions with China against this background of continuing shelling and clashes and insurgency um, in kind of to the West along the Pakistan line of control. It's interesting because I think there's been a lot of attention paid recently to these China-India tensions, which actually just the other day escalated to shots fired for, I think it was meant to be the first time in about 30 or 40 years that, that shots were actually fired between India and China on the border. Um, but we tend to sort of, I guess, just assume that they're separate conflicts, you know, that the, the Pakistan-India tensions are somewhat separate from the India-China tensions. Um, do we see any sort of, um, are the Chinese and the Pakistanis um, friendly on this question? Do they talk about these issues or is this just sort of two separate issues happening at the same time? 
So it, it's kind of both. Um, that's kind of been my answer a couple of times. Uh, but in this case, in, in, in these cases, I think it's right. So China and Pakistan have been allies since the, the early mid 1960s. Um, and so you've seen both military relationships like arms sales between the two. Also, in recent years, massive Chinese investments in Pakistan is kind of there's this thing called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is part of China's broader Belt and Road Initiative. So this is a they're they're kind of fairly good friends. Uh, we don't want to push that too far. The Chinese have never gone to war on Pakistan's behalf, for instance, right? So there are real there are also limits to their relationship. I think we don't know exactly what China-Pakistan coordination has been. Um, there's speculation ranging from the Chinese are doing their own thing and maybe keeping Pakistan in the loop, all the way to this is some kind of coordinated two-front strategy to put pressure on India. I honestly have no idea. Um, but it certainly is the case that China and Pakistan are, are, are good friends. Uh, Pakistan is one of China's kind of few solid allies or more reliable friends. Um, so it's it's a very important relationship and one that's grown both militarily and economically in the last you know five to ten years. So I, I want to broaden our aperture a little here um, and talk more generally just about the region. And so I know that your research um, focus is on the, the tension between kind of state and non-state actors in the region, um, violent actors. And, and obviously, it's a region just well known for those um, sort of non-state violent actors, sometimes backed by states and sometimes not. But it, it seems like a lot of these groups have kind of gone away in recent years. You know, we saw the, the final defeat of the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. Um, we've seen a lot of sort of states kind of triumph over the militant groups. The militant groups get a lot smaller. Um, is is that a, a realistic assessment of what's going on in the region? Yeah, so it's interesting. When I started kind of seriously studying the region was about, I don't know, four, 14 years ago now. And at that point, um, one of the dominant themes in the study of South Asia security was the prevalence of insurgency, both purely domestic and indigenous, and also those insurgencies that were domestic, but also supported by external state backers. And that has been an endemic issue going back decades. Um, I think what we've seen in the last decade in particular is fairly dramatic increases in state coercive capacity. So we talk a lot kind of international relations about external security, arms races, arms buildups, things like that. In this context, we've also seen fairly dramatic expansions in internal security power, basically kind of the pointy end of the state domestically. So this includes the involvement of formal national armies in counterinsurgency campaigns, but also the expansion of a whole apparatus of domestic surveillance, internal policing, uh, especially the Indian case, vast and growing internal paramilitary forces that are controlled by the Ministry of Home Affairs, which is like India's internal ministry, interior ministry, I should say, distinct from the Ministry of Defense. So we've seen kind of the expansion of these powers really pushing back against a variety of insurgent groups um, across the region. Now, in some cases, like in Nepal, there have been successful peace deals. So this is like the happy ending, as it were, to a civil war with a demobilized insurgent group that's brought into mainstream politics. In Sri Lanka, we saw the opposite, which was the incredibly bloody, purely military defeat of the Tamil Tigers in 2009. And both in India and Pakistan, you've seen a blend of direct, often very intense, very repressive state coercion, with in some cases, programs of amnesties or ceasefires that are kind of aimed at, um, even if not demobilizing armed groups entirely, kind of try to reduce the intensity of the conflict. And so in general, we've seen a pretty substantial decrease in direct anti-state insurgency. Now, 
that doesn't mean these things have gone away. Some of these conflicts remain, even if at a lower intensity, and so they're still very politically important. Um, we also, in part because of this more complicated international environment that I was talking a little bit about, it's at least conceivable that we could see an upswing in state sponsorship for insurgent groups. Um, I, I don't like to play up that angle too much because sometimes that turns into analysts saying that these insurgent groups are just proxies for foreign powers, which I think is usually not the case. But you can imagine spillover from Afghanistan, where we haven't seen this decrease in anti-state insurgency, you know, quite the opposite. Uh, spillover from Afghanistan, the escalation of India-Pakistan tensions, and most uncertainly, but if the Chinese and the Indians really fall out, it's at least conceivable, though I think not very likely, that you could see a kind of increased Chinese support for insurgent groups operating, especially in India's Northeast, which did occur in the past, like in the 1960s and 1970s. So there's an international component to this. And then finally, a lot of the, these regimes continue to be, to varied extents, illiberal, repressive, authoritarian, exclusionary, kind of pick your adjective, right? And in some cases, that's been accompanied by the defeat of these insurgencies. But I think it keeps the potential alive for future revolts, or at least future unrest. Um, so there are these kind of tension points that I think we want to really keep in mind, even as we do see this very clear aggregate trend in a decrease in insurgency across the region. Yeah, it, it will be really interesting in the coming years, I think, to see whether those state tensions d basically stay at the state to state level or whether they do resort to this sort of classic technique in the, 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 that they've used in the region many times of just sponsoring militants in, in one another's territories. Um, but I want to um, ask you, I guess, one big final question, um, sort of up at the state to state level. And so I think the biggest policy question in Washington about the region at the moment is whether um, these countries can be encouraged to balance with the US against China. So there's been a lot of talk lately about formalizing the Quad, which is um, US, India, Japan and Australia. Um, and you've been doing some work, I know, on public opinion in the region, um, particularly public opinion towards China. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering, can you tell us a little, what does that research suggest about whether these countries are gonna perhaps balance against China um, or whether they're gonna reject US overtures? Yeah, so I've been doing some really preliminary research on kind of public opinion trends in South Asia and also in, in Southeast Asia, especially looking at countries that are at least nominally democratic, right? That may de facto be, you know, single party, like competitive authoritarian or hybrid regimes, but at least the public you could imagine potentially to some extent having some role, right? And I think you can group kind of three trajectories um, across the set of South and Southeast Asian countries. Um, there are some countries, and here Pakistan is the classic kind of the key case with very high levels of pro-China sentiment, very low levels of don't know, like the Pakistani public is pretty much on board with a, a pro-China approach. And I think this goes back to the conversation we had earlier, where China and Pakistan have been quite close militarily and politically going back decades now, right? Um, and so there's that kind of one extreme would be a country like Pakistan. And you also see policy coordination of various kinds between the two countries. What we've seen in the last five years in particular is the other extreme as well, countries in which pro-China sentiment has dropped dramatically. And I would put India very much in this category. Um, the last few years have been very bad for China in Indian public opinion. I think the events of the last few months will further kind of accelerate that trend. Um, the Philippines, in terms of public opinion, is there. Indonesia, even Malaysia kind of trending in that direction. But then you see a big cluster of countries in the middle with fairly, you know, positive or, you know, favorable, 
uh, to, to use like American poly language, like reasonably decent net favorability of China, but often with big don't know response rates. So it isn't like a super consolidated consensus. Countries like Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh, uh, Myanmar, where China is uh, involved in various ways, in some cases politically, um, you know, at least allegedly supporting particular politicians or like in Nepal, kind of getting involved in, in Nepal's internal politics or economically through Belt and Road and other economic initiatives, right? And these are the countries where I think they're often smaller countries that don't attract as much attention. But that's where a lot of this, if you want to think of it as contest or competition, will be played out. Kind of who can not necessarily like win over these countries, but at least be a viable contender for infrastructure, for you know, political engagement. Um, so that's kind of the big picture of these, these three trajectories. Now, in terms of balancing, this is a really interesting question because on the one hand, you see the public opinion trends. On the other hand, then you need to ask, well, what are countries actually doing? So like Duterte in the Philippines is pursuing policies that are much more pro-China than public opinion would suggest, right? In India, we're seeing public opinion trending very strongly against China. But there's still a hard question for India, which is, or a set of hard questions, I should say. One is you've had a faltering economy for, for years now that's really been hit hard by COVID. So when kind of push comes to shove, when choices need to be made between spending on guns versus spending on butter, like how much is India really willing to invest in hard, large-scale military buildups, right? And if it does, what does that look like? So from a U.S. perspective, I think it's fair to say um, a lot of the interest in India's role is maritime. Right. So these, you know, even you see it in discussions in the quad about naval exercises, for instance, or maritime security. Um, and I think that's all important and, and valuable from an American perspective. But if I'm an Indian security manager, I've got Pakistan on one side and China on the other. They both have big, strong armies that have basically been able to put pressure in various ways on India. And so I could imagine if you're going to make those research investments, which maybe you don't, right? Maybe you decide that you just can't afford that in the face of this economic crisis. Maybe those resource investments will go to your continental land borders, your army and your air force, and, and less toward the maritime area, right? So that's one big open question. Um, what we have seen India doing in, in ways that, you know, it remains to be seen how this plays out is what we might think of, and this is not my area, so forgive me, you know, if I get this wrong, kind of economic balancing. So issues around 5G, for instance, or um, apps, Chinese apps, and involvement in the Chinese marketplace that are maybe trying to find other ways of pushing back on China that are less about kind of investing huge sums of money in the military, where China's just so much bigger already in terms of defense spending that it's going to be a big push to catch up. Maybe you find other ways of leveraging economic and diplomatic tools. And I think India's done some really interesting things there. It's not obvious to me. I just don't know whether that is enough to put real pressure on China relative kind of harder options. Um, but I think we want to think about balancing as, as looking at a spectrum of possible ways in which countries can respond. And definitely not just the spectrum of what kind of policy tools, but also of extent to which they're balancing. Because a lot of these countries are not interested in, in balancing China in a serious way, but they also don't want to fall under Chinese kind of domination, whether economically or politically. Um, so I think that's kind of how I think about some of the, the possibilities or ways of analytically thinking about what's going on in the region. I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it's kind of what I've been looking at. No, that's really that's really interesting. Um, and I think, you know, this is a region that um, I know people in Washington are looking at more. Um, and I think we all really need to pay more attention to and, and that includes myself because I know very little about it. Um, but I think we've run out of time for today. So thank you so much for, for taking us on a tour of Southeast Asia. Um, we've enjoyed having you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Emma. And thanks to our production team, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Lauren Sander. Thanks to you all at home for listening. 
And if you want to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. <laughs>